This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. At just 16 years old, Centoya Brown was arrested for the murder of 43-year-old Johnny Allen. Centoya was sentenced to life in prison. After years of advocacy, she was granted clemency and released from prison. Why would a young girl commit such an act, and what led to Centoya's eventual freedom? This is episode 16, The Centoya Brown Story. Hey, Amy, it's good to see you. Hi, Megan. Welcome back, everyone, to Women in Crime. I'm looking at Amy. I'm looking at her through Zoom. Um, So forgive us again if the audio is just a tiny bit different, but we're definitely doing our best to um, get you good quality here. So I have my I have my kids locked in the basement, so we should be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Amy uh, has to record from her closet. So she's literally hiding in her bedroom closet from everyone um, just to get this done. So, uh, Amy, you want to announce some of our patrons, our new patrons? Sure. I first want to say a big thank you to Angel from Illinois. Thank you, Angel. Thank you. And I would also like to give a big shout out to Jennifer R. from Metro Detroit. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Like, seriously. And again, thank you for the questions and emails. We love it. And the case suggestions. Yes. They have been awesome. Oh, my gosh. The case suggestions are awesome. But I have a list now that's going to cover us literally through probably next year if I just do case suggestions. So stop writing us with great cases. No, I'm kidding. Um, All right. So we have a couple more patrons. Who else do we have? We have Sin from Finland. How cool is that? I love the name and I love where she's from. Awesome. Thank you so much. I know. All the way from Finland. I really like a really... Really grateful. Really dig that. And we have two more patrons who have questions. So this one, uh, shout out to Steph from Ontario. Uh, Thank Thank you, Steph. Thank you, Steph. And her question is, how long have you been doing this or something similar? And I'm not sure if she means podcasting or in the criminal justice field. So I'll just say that we've been podcasting now for, oh boy, uh, what, about a year and a half, two years? Um, direct appeal one year anniversary is actually tomorrow, which is what day are we recording tomorrow? May 8th, Mm. a one year anniversary. I think that's about right. May 7th, uh, May 7th or 8th. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but we actually started working on it, uh, a good year, year and a half in advance. So actually working on, you know, all of this together, three years as for being in the field of criminology and criminal justice. So Let's see. For me, it probably started with the master's degree. And that was that was 2002 for me. Right after the master's, I went into probation and then back to school for the PhD. And since then. So for me, yep, 2002. Amy? 
Uh, I want to say for me, about a year later, 2003, I did not go back to graduate school till 2005, but I was working in the field with alcohol and substance abuse, which you can't talk about that without talking about the criminal justice system. So the world started to intertwine around then. So yeah, we're looking at what? How many years is that? 18? Oh my gosh. Did I I just do fast math? First of all, the math scared me though. I'm like, wow, I never think it's going to be like a long time. I always think it's like still like around, you know, seven or eight years. And then I'm like, no, it's actually closer to 20. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, that answers Steph's question. And we have a second question. Allison from North Carolina. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Allison. And here's her question, which I love. Which case, either solved or unsolved, sticks with you the most? Do you want to take this one first or you want me to? Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, this changes for me all the time. My, I think my, I'm gonna have to go with Nora Jackson case. Right. Remember, we covered Nora Jackson. Um, that was one of the first cases I covered for women in crime, and she was wrongfully convicted or she was exonerated for the murder of her mother. And you know, some people believe she's in fact guilty. Either way, the case is unsolved, and there's just so many questions. Yeah, I remember you saying that once before about that case, and I totally understand why that sticks with you. For me, there's, I'm going to go ahead and say two. So if you listen to Direct Appeal, I'm sorry, but I'm just so stuck on Melanie McGuire because we spent so much time and I would just love to know what actually really happened to Bill McGuire, no matter what and who, no matter who's guilty or involved. Uh, my second one, though, that I just I think about all the time still is John Bonet. I knew you were going to say that. Because I literally, it's like John Bonet every day. I think about this mm-hmm. case all the time and I would absolutely like, I'd probably give something big um, just to know what happened to her as well. So mm-hmm. those are our two cases. Thank you for your questions. We really look forward to your emails and case suggestions and all future contact. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Totally psyched for this one. And I just want to let everyone know that this was actually in the works before we found out about the Netflix documentary. So believe it or not, this isn't, you know, um, us going, oh, boy, we need to jump on this. Amy's been working on this for some time. So just let everyone know that this is a case that you've been interested in for a really long time. So absolutely. And we actually had two listeners who suggested this case while I was in the process of writing the story. And then, like you said, the Netflix documentary came out. At first, I was annoyed because I didn't want people to think I was just jumping on, you know, their coattails. But then I was actually really happy because it helped me see so much footage of the original trial, the appellate hearing. Um, It helped me put faces to names. So it was actually really good. That's awesome. And it was really good to see Centoya herself because obviously we know you can't judge people by their reactions or their affect. But it was very powerful. Did you see the documentary? I purposely didn't watch it yet because I wanted to wait for this episode and I don't know everything and I wanted to learn about it here. Good. Well, make sure you watch it because I will. I mean, I'll give you my opinion on it later, but you should watch it. Yep. So Centoya Brown, who now goes by Centoya Brown Long, she was born on January 29th, 1988 in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And very soon after, she moved with her mother to Tennessee. So unfortunately, she had a rough life from day one. She never knew her father. Um, Her birth mom, Georgina Mitchell, who was actually a teenager at the time of Centoya's birth, she drank throughout the pregnancy. And she talked about drinking a fifth of vodka a day the whole time that she was pregnant with Centoya. Some sources say she also used crack cocaine. She lived on the streets at time. She had a pretty long rap sheet. She has a very strong history of 
suicidal ideation. In fact, that whole family, um, the maternal grandmother as well, has a similar history. So unfortunately, she started off having, you know, these biological markers for a few of these different issues. So shortly after birth, Centoya spent time in many different households and even on the street before she was finally adopted by Elinette and Thomas Brown. So she was just two years old when they officially adopted her. But she actually had been staying with the family since she was about eight months old. Oh. So what happened was Elinette knew Georgina and Georgina had asked Elinette to watch the baby for her. And it was one of those situations where she just never came back. Gotcha. But luckily for Centoya, the Brown household was a very stable one, very loving. There are some sources that say she had some issues with her stepfather, her stepfather, Frank. Her parents would eventually get divorced. But either way, you know, it was a good family. She got very lucky. Uh, the Browns had two older children as well. Centoya had a good relationship with them. They both were already out of the house when Centoya got there. Oh, okay. In her memoir, Centoya recounts the closeness she had with her mother. Her father was a truck driver, so he was on the road a lot, and her and her mom were very close. Again, the two older siblings were out of the house. And Centoya did very well in elementary school. She was even placed in a program for gifted children. She was extremely intelligent. So things were going well for her academically, but she was often taunted for being, quote unquote, a white girl. She was biracial. Her mother was Caucasian and her father was African-American. And as you'll see, if you look up pictures, Centoya is light skinned and her two adoptive parents had much darker skin than she did. And children were not very nice about that. Okay. Um, she says she never felt like she belonged. And while her mother was extremely loving, she often felt very alone and isolated. Unfortunately, she started getting in trouble at a very young age. For example, one time she threw a rock at her neighbor's granddaughter and it hit her in the head. Centoya says it was just part of a game. She did not mean to hurt anyone. You know, this just shows poor impulse control. She would vandalize property, again, not meaning to do harm. She would often feel guilty afterwards, couldn't understand why she would do these things. Low level thefts. You know, I'm talking under 10 years old at this point. OK, I was about to ask the age. Thank you. So as you could imagine, you know, she was already ostracized because of her skin color. But now people started looking at her as a bad kid. And she was really quickly labeled as a disruptive kid who, you know, nobody really liked her, unfortunately. And we know the effects labeling has, you know, we talk yes. about this all the time in our classes. Once a kid's yeah. labeled, they begin to fulfill the label. Yeah. And as we'll see with Centoya, she was labeled very early on, not only because of the way she was acting, but because of her mother, um, Centoya's adopted father would say, you know, you're just like your mom, you're nothing. You know, so she was she already had this label that you're going to turn out to be just like your mother. Got it. Yep. In second grade, she was kicked out of that gifted program that I had mentioned before for disrupting class and for disrespecting her teacher. Of course, her parents were extremely upset about this. So it seems as though this was really when things started to spiral for her. She returned to regular classes and, you know, she felt judged and even more removed from everyone as she had felt before. She started stealing more. And one time she brought no-dose to school. Do you know what no-dose is? Oh, that sounds so familiar. Is that the, the sleeping pills or no? It's it's actually caffeine pills. Uh, yeah, I meant. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. She had stolen them from her brother's truck. I don't even think she meant to do any harm, but of course it's contraband in school. Right. And she got expelled. Ooh, expelled. Yes. Yeah, she got expelled. You know, she was already, you know, the school already wasn't happy with her actions. So I think they were happy to get rid of her. Got it. So it was at this time that her parents enrolled her in an alternative school. So as it often does, this experience did the opposite of what its intent was. 
Instead of turning her life around, she started hanging out with kids who did far worse things than she had ever done. Oh, I see. Okay. Gotcha. So now we get into differential association theory. Our students love this one, right? Yep. Okay. A little bit of social learning theory. She's around other people learning certain behaviors, and she's very young at this point. While she's at this alternative school, she gets arrested for assault after getting to a fight with one of her friend's mother's. She was sent to a juvenile facility. She was ordered to undergo a psych evaluation. So she was also sent to a psych facility for juveniles. And unfortunately, she also made some new friends and picked up some new skills at this facility as well. This is why they say that prisons and other detention centers are breeding grounds for crime. Yep. Especially when you're putting kids when they're, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. So when she was released, they tried to put her back into middle school. But at this point, she doesn't belong. You know, she's placed in a behavior modification program. We know what those can do. She was with children who suffered from mental and developmental delays. So go. let's go right back to labeling. She didn't she didn't feel like she belonged. And now she was in a gifted program. Now she's in behavior modification. We can see what's going on here. So not surprisingly, she had an altercation with a teacher. And once again, she was sent to juvie. And she was officially under the custody of the Department of Children's Services. Do you know how old she is at this point? Yeah, she's only 13. Okay. So, you know, this is not a good start for her. So once again, she's in a facility surrounded by people. And a lot of the people she's surrounded by are much older than her. And she's a baby. She's 13 years old. And she's with 17, even 18-year-olds. Much higher security. Lots of fights. She tried to escape several times. Every time she escaped, she got caught, sent back. All right. So after two years in custody, she was finally released back to her family, except when she gets home, she is told that her father left. Okay, so just her and her mother is what you're saying at that point? Actually, I think she would have preferred that there was a new man in the picture. So her mother had a new boyfriend named Frank and she did not get along with him. Now we're looking at strain theory, right? This actually is a great case, Megan, to teach in our theory classes because there is so much going on here. Right, Amy. And for people who don't know, strain theory is often about the stress and frustration that people face. And in lieu of strong coping mechanisms, they will act out in deviant or criminal ways, um, ways that they would offend. Oftentimes, this relates to people who face blocked opportunities and offend for financial purposes. But when talking about Centoya's stepfather here, uh, we're talking about strain theory in that people uh, will sometimes react in in a negative way when they experience something they really, really don't want. And so we teach that often in forms of abuse. Um, A stepfather who doesn't treat you well, that would certainly fit the mold here. Exactly. And you haven't even heard the half of it yet. Centoya enrolled back in school because she had no choice. She was a minor. Her mother said, you're going back to school, right? It did not take long for her to stop going. And she started hanging out with some older kids that she had met when she was away. And they pretty much spent every day getting high. So she would pretend she's going to school. And instead of going to school, she would just go smoke the whole day. And of course, her mom eventually found out. And she was not very happy. Right. Of course, her mom said, you can't do this. And she said, "Okay, well, then I'm going to leave. And she ran away from home. Okay, so at this time, she's about 15 years old and she runs away to stay with some of her friends that she had met who are in their 20s. They started just smoking weed every day. Some petty theft quickly escalated into selling crack. 
Over the course of a year or so, she would go home, run away and start selling drugs, and then she would go home again and leave and it would go back and forth. And this isn't surprising because she was a child. She would get scared when she was living life on the streets. She loved her mother. She would go home to her mom. She would feel safe. But unfortunately, the streets kept calling her back. While she was on the streets, and I say on the streets because she was between houses living with people that didn't have her best interests. You know, she was brutally raped on a few occasions. And it was around this time that she met a guy named Cutthroat. Cutthroat. Okay. Believe it or not, that was not his given birth name. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Cutthroat with a K. Right, right. Oh, oh, that's even better. Okay. His name was actually Garion McLaughlin. Okay. So she felt Can you say that again? What was his name? His name was Garion McLaughlin. Okay. And she fell for him fast. She said that he was the first person that ever listened to her, and she really felt like he was the one. She really was into this guy, and he was also in his mid-20s, along with the other people she was hanging around with. She very quickly moved in with him. No, he did not have a house. They lived in hotels. Very shortly after the honeymoon stage was over, she looked at him as a boyfriend, but he started forcing her to have sex with him. He taught her how to be, quote unquote, a good slut. And he abused her horribly, both physically and sexually and degraded her. I can't even repeat some of the things I read what he did to her. She said she didn't bother trying to leave. This is not surprising. She felt cared for for the first time in her life because although he was brutalizing her, the other side of that was him also loving her or pretending to love her or showing her some sort of love that she had never felt before. And because he and started she, off differently. He didn't, you know, they don't exactly. start off with the brutalization. He starts off with all the good stuff. And then by the time she's hooked into this relationship and yeah. in love, that's when, you know. You would be surprised. It took maybe days, weeks. This moved pretty quickly. But okay. I think, unfortunately, Centoya had such a poor self-image already that it didn't take long. He often called her his bitch. And she says in her memoir, while she knows that is a degrading term, it made her feel like she belonged to somebody and it made her feel really special. So it's very sad. She's a child. Yeah, that's telling. Yeah. A few days after they were getting settled in their, you know, their hotel, Kut said she needed to start earning her keep. So unfortunately, what do you think this means? I, when you were saying it before describing him, I'm like, he's definitely going to try to prostitute her out. So I, I assume that means he wanted her to prostitute herself. He was grooming her from day one. Right. Right. So at first, she just pretended to be a sex worker and she would basically take money from men up front and then leave. So in other words, she would rob men and she felt like this was a way that she didn't have to exploit herself, but she can also give cut what he wanted. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before she actually started having sex for money. She says in her memoir that she started to accept the reality that she was a slut, as Kut has been telling her all along. So this is really sad. So she, with labeling, right, you eventually become, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is. And that's exactly what happened here. And she's defeated. Kut would bring over men and force her to have sex with them, and then he would just take the money. So in other words, he was her pimp. Yeah. Right? Although at the time, Centoya did not realize that. She thought she was helping them live a life together because, of course, Cut made Centoya believe that this was all just temporary. And once they got enough money, they would move to Vegas and live happily ever after. Oh, sure. So one night after being almost strangled to death by Cut, um, let me just tell you why she was almost strangled to death. He was pissed because she was not bringing in enough money. 
So he choked her and, in fact, almost killed her. So she went out to find the client. The evening of August 8th, 2004, Santoya headed over to the local Sonic in Nashville to try to get some business. A gentleman stopped his car, asked her if she was doing okay, and she started chatting with this man, who turned out to be 43-year-old Johnny Michael Allen. So Johnny Michael Allen was a local real estate agent. He was also a youth pastor and a Sunday school teacher. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. And he was also an army vet. So he sounds like a pretty good guy, right? Yeah, I mean, he's going to be a very sympathetic victim here, too. (sighs) Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay, so at first he seemed nice. He asked her questions instead of just saying, you know, how much. He asked her, you know, how she was, if she was hungry. He brought her food. They went back and forth on how much for Centoya's service. Okay, I'm sorry. So he's a client. I thought you meant he was just a concerned pastor who was stopping to help her. I'm, I'm curious to see where you're going to go with this one. All right, yeah. I'll hold my yep. question. Okay. So they decided on $150 for her services. He suggested they go to her house. She did not feel comfortable with that. She wanted to go to a hotel room as she normally did to conduct her business, but she thought he seemed nice, so she gave in. They ate their Sonic. They went to his home. He showed her around the house, making sure to stop to show her his gun collection, which included two shotguns and a handgun. She said she started to feel nervous, I think she realized nobody knew where she was. Okay. And she was at this random person's house and he has this gun collection and she thought he was acting strange. So she asked if she could watch TV and relax a little. She claims it's because she wanted to be closer to the door, which was downstairs by the television set. Okay. She said he talked a lot about his guns and about how important he was in the community. She asked if she could take a shower. And when she got out of the shower, he was in bed waiting for her naked. So obviously she was there for a reason and she knew that, but she did not feel comfortable. So she said she wanted to take a little nap and she pretended that she was sleeping, of course, to avoid having sex with him at that moment. According to Centoya, at this point, he grabbed her very hard between the legs and kept bothering her. And then he turned seemingly reaching for something. She assumed he was reaching for a gun. So she grabbed the gun out of her purse and shot him in the back of the head. So why does she have a gun? Well, Kut always gave her a gun for safety. All right, because we know that, unfortunately, sex workers are often assaulted. Yes. After shooting him in the back of the head, she stole $172 from his wallet. She took two of his firearms and fled the scene in his truck. Any questions? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, right now, this is bad. I see how this is going to play out really bad for her at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. But so, I think you pretty much solved the issue of what uh what 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 was the purpose of their exchange. That was my initial. Yes, exactly. But you know, I think like you mentioned, who the victim was, of course, is always important in every case. She immediately goes back to the hotel room and tells Cut what happened. She told Cut, I shot this guy and I took his truck. Cut was of course pissed. Why the hell did you bring the stolen truck here? Go get rid of it. She drops it off at a local Walmart, hitches a ride back to the hotel. She claims she had no clue if this guy was even dead. She says the reason she took the guns and the money and the car was because she was afraid he was still alive and she wanted to get out of there fast. So she actually found out he died by watching the news. And it was interesting. She said that after this, that cut was so much nicer to her and she felt like she really earned his respect. So although he wasn't happy because that might make things more difficult for him, she really felt like she... She was in his good graces now. Maybe he was scared of her. Maybe, right? So their plan was to move hotels the next morning. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you look at it, they got woken up by the police barging in with guns. Centoya's first response was, don't touch Kut. He didn't do anything. Let him go. This just shows what we often see by women who were abused. Well, not even women. She was a child. 
right? She's trying to protect him, even though he was the one who has been brutalizing her. She also says all along that she was never worried about getting in trouble because she believed that she was defending her life. So her number one concern was just making sure that Kut did not get in trouble. That also shows you her, um, you know, unfortunately, emotional immaturity of someone who's so young and who gets arrested. Exactly. I think that's a very good point. It does show us her frame of mind at the time. She tells police she is 19, although at the time she was just 16. At first they believed her, so they did not call her parents because she was not considered a minor. Mm -hmm. But not surprisingly, they're the police and it did not take them long to figure out that she was in fact a minor. And apparently they were extremely pissed off when they found out that she had lied to them. So they take her in for an interrogation. And one of my favorite things about this case is there's footage of everything. You can see footage of the interrogation. There was actually a documentary filmmaker who started following Centoya's case very early on. We'll talk about that later on. But I just want to urge everyone to look up some of this stuff. Uh, Amy, sorry, before you go on, um, when she was taken into the interrogation room, did they know her age? Was she taken in or I guess my question is, was she taken in alone and did they question her? Okay, yeah. So she waived her Miranda rights. Remember, she was only 16. She was very tired. This was about 3 a.m. And she was high. So this is a situation where somebody who's underage, under the influence and tired, they're in no position to be interrogated at that point let alone the fact that she had no attorney or parent. This is not surprising because we know that the numbers around 90% of juveniles end up speaking to police without an attorney or parent present. Right. So, of course, I was not surprised to hear that they promised her leniency if she talked. They told her she is up for a life. She might go in for 99 years. But if, you know, she talks to them, then they could catch her a deal. But they're allowed to say these things, right? Right. Well, the police are allowed to lie to suspects in an interrogation room. In the United States. So the big question in this case from early on was whether she should stay in juvenile court or be transferred up to adult court. If she was transferred to adult court, she'd be facing mandatory life because in Tennessee with a first degree murder charge, that's what the sentence was. So she had to have what is known as a transfer hearing. And that's when the judge would decide whether or not they're going to waive her case up. In preparation for the hearing, she actually met her birth mom for the first time. Wow. Which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Any idea why she why her birth mom was even included here? I would imagine it's because they're trying to make a case to keep her in juvenile court and her situation, her background being so bad that uh, it would kind of mitigate her responsibility and keep her there. Yep. A hundred percent right. So there they had called on her birth mom to testify as to her own issues to show this biological link and also to testify to the fact that she drank every day during pregnancy. I think Centoya on some level felt that her mom was, you know, helping her out. So I thought that was the right thing to do. Really, what her legal team had to do was they had to show that Centoya had issues that could be addressed in a juvenile facility and that she would be able to be rehabilitated and be a productive member of society. The prosecution, of course, was arguing that she should be transferred to adult court because from early on, the prosecution claimed that she shot him while he was asleep. But you know what they never touched on? Self-defense? Even worse. They never touched on the fact that a 43-year-old man was picking up a teenager for sex. So I want to stop and point out the fact that Centoya was never portrayed as a victim in this scenario. She was described as a teenage prostitute, not a victim of sex trafficking. Although I do want to say later on this would be acknowledged, but at the time of the crime. That's to me, that's the biggest problem in this case is that nobody looked at her as the victim. Um, That often happens, unfortunately, too, with sex workers, uh, you know, as they're criminalized as, as opposed to being seen as one of the most victimized groups. 
Not to mention she was under the age of consent. It, that's not um, a defense, but I'm sure that the ar- counter argument would have been she said she was older. It could have been for which sure. Which is not, yeah. it doesn't matter. It, it actually doesn't yeah. negate statutory, but I was just yeah. pointing it out. Yeah, that's a good point. Two weeks after the hearing, a judge decided that he would in fact transfer her to adult court. So this meant that she was facing a potential life sentence. Wow. If she had been tried as a juvenile, the max would have been about eight years. Wow. So this is a very important decision in this case. She was immediately transferred to an adult facility to await trial. But since she was a juvenile, they did keep her separate from adults until she turned 18. And it is interesting. She does say that it was actually nice to be kept in really an isolation because it was quiet and no one bothered her. So she says it wasn't that bad. Okay. Well, of course, at first until the days turned into weeks, turned into months and she started, you know, it started affecting her mental capabilities. Right. It was also, sorry, I just want to point out around this time she read in the paper that Kut was murdered. He was murdered. Do we know by who? Um, it was some sort of drug deal gone bad. Okay. And she talks about how she was very devastated at the time. Remember, she was she's still young here. She, she This was her first boyfriend, her first love. But she does realize later on that if she never got arrested, she probably would have still been with him and she'd probably be dead too. Right. All right, let's move on to the trial now. August 21st, 2006 was the start of the criminal trial. So at this point, Centoya was 18 years old and she had already been incarcerated for two years. As I mentioned, there's a lot of this footage um, in the Netflix documentary. You know, you can really see the opening arguments and how hysterical Centoya is. And I want to point out, she looks like a baby. It's really heartbreaking. Wow. I'm going to I mean, I'm definitely going to check this out like yeah, right she, after we get off the Zoom call. Yeah, she's it's just it's really sad. I'm, of course, I do not think that she had any right to murder someone. And I feel for the victim as well. But it, when you do watch this, you do get to see just how young she actually is. All right. So there are a few issues that I guess a few of the main issues for the prosecution. Of course, the detectives took the stand who talked about the interrogation. Something that was, I think, weighed a little more was the medical examiner who took the stand described the injury as immediate and his hands were clasped. So they were saying clearly it was not self-defense. He was sleeping when he was shot. But okay. of course, but his hand being clasped, I mean, does that, does that, all right. I don't know why that definitely indicates him being sleeping, but that's fine. I think they, I think they're trying to say that since he died immediately, the placement of his hands indicated how they were placed right before he was shot. Got it. But of course, there are experts that would probably argue that as well. But the defense, they didn't argue. They didn't argue against it okay. that strongly. Something else that worked against her is her mom took the stand. And like I said, her mom was, you know, a really strong advocate for her. You know, Centoya had always said this was self-defense, but they had played an audio tape. You know, they tape all conversations when an individual is, yes. you know, incarcerated. And it was a conversation between her and her mom. And in the audio, she says, Mom, I killed him. I executed I- him. That's going to work against her for sure. Yeah. So the prosecution was saying this was a confession, clearly. She never said, Mommy, I did this because I was defending myself. But of course, Centoya would say it's just the words that I use because I was feeling so right. guilty about what I did because she showed right. remorse early on. And so the DA's story was really that she killed him so she could rob him. She never wanted to have sex, was putting the pressure on, get me some money. So she knew the only way she was getting money was to first kill him and take his money. So that that was their narrative. The defense consisted mostly of people offering some sort of explanation for why she mm-hmm. turned out the way she did. So one doctor said that he believed she had borderline personality disorder. Others talked about her mother and fetal alcohol syndrome. 
Centoya, not surprisingly, was advised not to take the stand, other than the fact that she was very young and also she was impulsive and displayed impulsive behavior at times. I think it's also the fact that she initially lied to the police. Okay. So it doesn't look good for her that, you know, she doesn't have a good track record early on with being honest. I was surprised. It was a very short trial. It was only five days. Is that it, short it for is, a But trial? you know what? We deal with the atypical trials that go on for like, you know, two months. And that's not really as normal either. Yeah. For this type, ah, you know what? Actually, okay. for this type of case, no, I would say probably two weeks is more normal or more typical. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. And the jury only deliberated for six hours. But also, they... They don't have a lot of they didn't have a lot of witnesses. So it always depends on the number of witnesses. And the jury deliberating for six hours seemed short to me. I've heard of deliberations of murder trials that lasted for 60 minutes. And I'm shocked when I hear that. And I think six hours is also short. Yeah, I agree. So she was found guilty of first degree murder, felony murder and aggravated robbery. Oh, that's that's harsh. I'm- and on. Unfortunately for her, I don't know if you know this, but Tennessee had the harshest juvenile sentencing. Well, one of the harshest juvenile sentencing among all the states. But the juvenile sentencing shouldn't apply here, right? Because she's in she was found guilty in adult court. Sorry, juveniles who are tried as adults. Oh, okay, Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry about that. So her sentence was 51 to life, which would make her almost 70 years old when she was eligible for parole. Wow, just in time not to collect Social Security. Two weeks after the verdict, she was transferred to the Tennessee Prison for Women, where she was to serve out her sentence. So she would be transferred to a Memphis facility at some point and then back to Nashville. But she was in the general population because she was now 18. All right. So in her book, she talks a little bit about how when she first got to prison, she acted tough, right? Because you're what else can you do? She's also still fairly young and she was not necessarily on the right path. She really felt like there was no point because she felt like she was going to be there for the rest of her life. I think she was very fortunate that she had a lawyer who was also a friend to her and sat her down one day and said, if you ever want a chance at a normal life, you need to pretty much get your shit together. I turned this stuff around. Centoya says that that really stuck with her and she only started hanging out with people who were doing the right thing. Oh, that's good. So any of her friends who were, you know, doing drugs and, you know, other illegal activity in prison, she kind of dropped them. She only started hanging around with people who were taking classes. Okay, good. And she's getting sober now. So, I mean, that's a good thing. Yep. She also took every opportunity that was offered to her. So let me just tell you what she did while she was incarcerated. I don't want to give away when she gets out, but obviously we know she gets out because I said it in the intro. But while she's in there, she earns her GED. She actually earned her GED in jail. She enrolled in a college program through Lipscomb University, which is actually a Christian school in Tennessee. She actually took all inside out classes, which is pretty cool. Inside out classes. Amy teaches inside out. Yes. Can you just tell people what inside out is real quick? Yeah, sure. So I'm a trained inside out instructor. So basically, that's when you take students from campus with you to students who are incarcerated and you have combined classes. They are amazing. And actually, as Centoya talks about it, she said she really felt seen. She didn't feel judged. That's what's so beautiful about these classes is for a moment, I think the incarcerated students feel normal. Yeah. Because they're with their peers. Yep. Right. So she finished two bachelor's degrees. She was very focused on her studies. She enrolled in a culinary arts program. She mentored at-risk youths. She even took part in a puppy training program. Oh, that's so great. Oh, my gosh. Uh, She really did a lot. Okay. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't want to paint it all rosy here because she did have trouble while incarcerated. You know, she she did have a lot of issues off and on, but she always bounced back and she was given second chances by a lot of people who really believed in her. 
people saw her true colors and really helped her out. She was fortunate that way. Very fortunate. So although things seemed like they were going okay in prison, she was really having no luck on the legal front. She lost her first appeal. So as we know, the first appeal really focuses on errors at trial, mm-hmm. right? Her second appeal focused on new evidence that suggested that she had a cognitive impairment due to the fact that her mother drank while pregnant with her. So although she was very smart, remember she was in the gifted program as a child. Right. She actually had an IQ of 134, which is quite high. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So nobody could deny that she was brilliant, but she had very poor impulse control, as we see throughout her life. On November 13th, 2012, she had an appellate hearing asking for a new trial. So this hearing focused on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which you know affects your responses and lowers impulse control. And her legal team claimed that she did not act the way someone with such a high intelligence would act. They said her functional abilities were equivalent to a person with mild retardation. Wow. Not my word, their word. Got it. Obviously, that is a horrible term that is no longer used. But at the time, it was still being used. Understood. They really focus on this discrepancy between her behavior and her IQ. Her lawyers also brought up a recent case of Miller versus Alabama. Oh, yeah. I know that case. I teach it in my... I was going to say, Megan, do you know that case? It's a big one. Yep. Teach it in my classes. So Miller versus Alabama in 2012. This was a Supreme Court case that says you cannot sentence a juvenile indefinitely to life without parole. In other words, there has to be some sort of individualized sentencing hearing which it was such a huge case, right? But you know what Tennessee prosecutors said? Well, they said, well, Brown was not technically given a life without parole sentence because she would be eligible for parole after 51 years. So they found that loophole. I was going to say that too. I figured that was coming. Yep. She was really out of options here. So her case started, very lucky for her, her case started sparking public interest. So in 2011, there was a documentary called Me Facing Life. Have you seen that one? No. It was PBS? Okay. So this was actually made by the same director as the Netflix documentary. And it showed her case and it caught people's attention. She started receiving tons of letters offering support and friendship. Mm -hmm. And actually one of those letters, this is a side note here, one of those letters was from Jamie Long, a local musician who is now her husband. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, basically, he wrote her and said, quote, God told me to tell you that you're getting out of prison. And then eventually he flew from Texas to Tennessee to visit her. And, you know, eventually they fall in love. But before we get to the good stuff, let's go back to, you know, what is going on here. So Centoya and her legal team were busy strategizing. So her last federal appeal had been denied. She was really out of options. A- any idea what her only hope was? <sighs> Clemency. Yes. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say clemency, <laughs> a pardon. I don't know. Okay. Yep. Her only hope was to be granted clemency by the governor. So her legal team would ask if her sentence could be commuted to second degree murder. And with time served, she would be free. So yes, she would be a convicted murderer still, but at least she would be home. Her chances were not great because they found that less than 1% of clemency petitions were granted in Tennessee during the prior decade. Yeah. Okay, so remember I was saying at the time of her sentencing, Brown was labeled a teenage prostitute? Yes. Well, perception had finally changed in November 2017. In Tennessee, anyone who is 18 or younger cannot be charged with prostitution. They are simply too young to consent. Agreed. Yes. Instead, Tennessee law rightfully defines any minor who performs a commercial sex act as a victim of sex trafficking. Absolutely agreed. Finally. Finally. So some say this change was actually partially inspired by Centoya's story. 
I mean, the Me Too movement was also gaining momentum around here. So I think there was just like a lot of, you know, a lot of things going on that might have, you know, helped move that forward. During this time, between the new Tennessee law and Centoya's documentary, the local news station aired her story and it quickly went viral. I don't know if you recall this. I somewhat um, recall. Yes. Hashtag free Centoya Brown. Yes. Um, had over like two million reshares. Kim Kardashian, Rihanna, T.I., Snoop Dogg. LeBron James, all of these famous people started tweeting for clemency for Centoya. Yeah, I remember this. Okay. Yep. And so this is really, I think what happened was, again, Black Lives Matter and Me Too movement. This was just such a strong example of how the criminal justice system punished people of color who were, in fact, victims themselves. So I think that's why it stirred up so much support. It's like the perfect storm for it. Exactly. I even wrote perfect storm. Aww. Mm-hmm twins. Okay. Her legal team started heavily pursuing the governor, Bill Haslam, at this time, and they filed a petition for her clemency. Tons of people vouched for her and wrote letters all over the national media. I don't know if you recall, Megan, but, you know, GMA, Today Show, Inside Edition. I do remember the media storm here, yeah. Just to give some information about clemency, before the governor will take any action, um, he had asked for the opinion of the parole board so her legal team started prepping to go before them. And Centoya essentially had to plea for her life to the parole board. The main purpose was really for them to show that she had been rehabilitated since her initial arrest and that she would no longer be a threat to society and, in fact, would be a productive member of society. Okay. And again, they were asking for her sentence to be commuted to second degree murder. May 23rd, 2018 was the parole hearing and Centoya's last plea for freedom after 12 years incarcerated. The hearing was videotaped. Again, you can see it if you look it up. The panel, interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, but the panel was mostly white men and two white women. Uh, Many people testified, speaking mostly about her transformation over the years. She also spoke and showed remorse, asked for mercy. Very heartfelt. The victim's friend and the original detective on the case, of course, spoke as well. As we know, at parole hearings, of course, the victim has to have a voice, right? Centoya's birth mom was there as well uh-huh. actually wearing a shirt that said good vibes only which i thought was cute it's that is really cute um question yeah. was her adoptive mother also present at all these hearings and yes okay yeah she was her strongest advocate she okay. you know went to visit her every week and yep okay and her, actually her older sister missy as well was a very strong advocate okay so what happens the board ended up divided so two recommended that the request be granted Two full out denied it and two recommended that her sentence be lowered to 25 years, which would mean that she would still have another 11 years to serve. Ooh, what happens when they're divided like that? I should know this offhand, but I don't. Yeah, well, there are state differences, so don't be so hard on yourself. Thank you. Um, so basically in Tennessee, the governor's just asking for their input, but he could do whatever he wants. Oh, right. Okay. They, they was just consulting. So it's just, it's just advisory. Got it. Sh- strictly. Yeah. Of course. So she waited anxiously. Again, this was in May 2018. It wasn't until his last day in office on June 7, 2019, that the governor made his final decision. He called in the legal team for a private meeting and said he will commute her sentence to 15 years. Wow. So this would mm-hmm. so this would mean that she had only seven more months to serve. And the majority of those seven months would be served in a transitional part of the prison. Wow. And I'm sorry. And also she would be on parole for 10 years. That makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, this was this was huge, huge. Her and Jamie actually got married over the phone shortly after they got the news, which is very cute. And you want to hear something so romantic? Jamie had already moved to Nashville. Remember, he lived in Texas. He moved there 
just in anticipation of this happening. He he had such a strong faith in God and really believed that this was going to work. So he uprooted his life and moved there, believing that she was going to be coming home. Sounds like true love to me. Right. I wish I was that optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) So does Alan. Um, Right. I know. (laughs) So on August 7th, 2019, after serving 15 years, 31 year old Centoya Brown, well now Centoya Brown Long, walked free and she will be on parole until the year 2029. So I know this was a long episode. I am almost done. I just want to give you a quick update. Okay. About where is Centoya now? Okay. Okay. So Centoya lives in Nashville with her husband, Jamie. Since her release, she has gone on a national speaking tour and she says she's contemplating law school and would like to start a family. She's super young still. So she has a whole life ahead of her. I was just thinking that. So as I mentioned a couple, a lot of times during this episode, I mentioned Centoya's memoir. So since being released from prison, she published the book called Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System. So the memoirs mostly features writing that she put together while she was incarcerated. And it really shows the experiences of a young person who is essentially being brought up in America's prison system for over a decade. It is brutally honest. She talks about the good, the bad, the ugly. She does not sugarcoat things. And I found that I really respected that because, of course, she she wants people to see her in a certain light, but she holds nothing back. Does she talk about her crime as well? And she still I just want to ask, does she still maintain the same story that she felt um, that he was going to pull a gun on her or so? she felt in danger? Mm-hmm. OK. Yeah, she doesn't. She actually surprisingly, she doesn't. The crime has such a small part of the book. It's very interesting the book, I'd say the crime is like five pages of a 300 page book. I just wondered if she's still yep. still maintained yep. her story. Yep. Kind yep. Of her. She goes, she glosses over it, but yes. So um, she's now really committed to exposing the injustices in the system and she is committed to working, you know, to help others. Mm-hmm. So this Netflix documentary. Well, did you know that Centoya did not even know about it? Netflix did not work with her on it. How is that possible? Did they want so, to or I don't get it. So remember I mentioned the gentleman who did the earlier documentary, the PBS documentary? Yes. Um so he, he was a he had old footage. He sold it to Netflix. And he pretty much made a deal. He made a deal with Netflix. So according to Brown, who again Brown Long, she says that this was an unauthorized documentary. And that her husband and her were surprised when they first heard the news because they did not participate in any way. I don't understand that why they wouldn't even ask for the participation first. Like, why not at least ask? And then, okay, they turn you down. Then, you know, we have this footage. I don't know. I I really don't know. But, you know, she says she's currently in the process of sharing her story in the right way in full detail. Okay. And, you know, she does say, quote, that she prays that this film highlights things wrong in our justice system. But I did have nothing to do with this documentary. Okay. Well, I don't want to ruin the documentary for you, but I think she might be disappointed with the documentary. Okay, got it. Let's not. So the documentary. Yeah, in case listeners haven't. um, Yeah, I I don't want to ruin it for anyone. But my opinion and opinion of others is that the films really fails to grapple with some of the larger criminal justice issues. Okay. So it's really focused on her personal path to, I guess we could say, redemption. Right. And a lot of footage from, you know, when she was just a child when this all happened, you know. But, you know, the film ignores many of the systemic issues and the racial dynamics in our system. It doesn't even touch on the fact that race might have played in her case. And I think that was kind of a huge miss. And I'm wondering, I haven't heard Centoya's statement 
on the actual documentary if she's going to give one. But I'd be curious to see what she says about that. Oh, I'd be very curious as soon as I see it. So, Megan, thank you for being so patient and such a good listener. But what are your thoughts here? I mean, it's such a good story and I was really excited for you to tell it. My thoughts here are that I wouldn't I wouldn't guess that Centoya premeditated the crime. And I would guess that after being a a sex worker for so long that she probably was fearful um, in a lot of instances. And, you know, she went back to this guy's house and it probably was a mistake. I, I mean, my ultimate opinion is that she was, you know a child who was victimized she committed a very adult act and that's what people mm-hmm. look at well she shot a man in the back of the head yeah but you have to look at a 16 year old who's come from you know just had a, a really bad se- series of events in her life so i think that my opinion was that she definitely should have been tried in the juvenile system i think that might have been more appropriate mm-hmm. that being said it does seem that i could be wrong because it does seem that her having served uh, 15 years in prison and under the circumstances she did led to her reform. So perhaps that was the appropriate. I do not believe that a 50 year sentence was appropriate at all, but perhaps the one she got was just the one she needed. I think that's a great point and similar to my conclusion as well. I think that the big miss here is that she should have never been transferred to adult court. Right. Definitely not first degree murder. You know, I can't I don't think you could say this was premeditated at all. Maybe a crime of passion. If you're going to try her as an adult, at the very least, it should have been a second degree murder charge. But I also believe that the system failed her from a young age. Right. And it just kept failing. Yeah, there's systemic failure that we see. And also it's uh, I really what one thing I appreciated is the changes that happened to treat you know, children who become, you know, forced sort of sex workers to treat them as victims. I was really glad to hear that. That's a really positive change in the system. Yeah, I I wish it it was the case, you know, uh, across the entire system, but it feels like we're moving in that direction. I agree. And I think probably Centoya would feel that this wasn't in vain because so much good has come out of this on a policy level. And she does, you know, now do a lot of work for criminal justice reform. So I think she would feel the same way. And I think it's also important to think, uh, you know, when we talk about juveniles who commit crimes and whether or not they should be transferred up, it's really, you need to look at the circumstances and no one ever really spent time looking at why she was in the situation she was in. And again, the fact that she was also a victim. Well, we look forward to seeing what Centoya does with her future. Hopefully she's paving the way for some more positive change. Thank you so much for this case today, Amy. Thank you, Megan. Thank you guys for listening. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episodes come from the book Free Centoya by Centoya Brown Long, the Netflix documentary Murder to Mercy, Time Magazine, and NPR.